From the McCorney Institute for Democracy on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. Michael, today we're going to interview uh, Carolyn Hunter, who is the chair of the Federal Election Commission and also, uh, not irrelevantly, a, uh, a Penn State alumna. Carolyn is an attorney and was an attorney for the uh, Republican National Committee uh, at some point before she joined the uh, Federal Election Commission. Uh, but, you know, since we don't have public financing of elections in this country, except for the presidential election and some state elections, uh, we we need something like the FEC to uh, to watch over the process of uh, to watch over campaign finance laws. Right. And and it is interesting for us from the point of view of this podcast to talk about these these questions of funding campaigns insofar as they relate to some really, really fundamental questions about uh, a democracy, right? I mean, um, on the one hand, you have this idea, the uh, one of the most peerless ideas of one person, one vote, right? It is, it is a radical notion of equality. Well, maybe we should just step back a little bit and kind of talk uh, uh, briefly and insofar as we know about the uh, kind of the history and the genesis of the FEC. Uh, it, it was a post-Watergate initiative um, uh, developed in order to um, bring some, really for the first time, some kind of um, uh, constant um, institutionalized oversight of uh, how elections are financed and what they spend their money on at the federal level. So the FEC was set up to oversee the campaign finance system, to provide some transparency, which was clearly missing in Watergate, and uh, to uh, enforce the laws that Congress Congress set up. Uh, but, But it does raise a question, I think, about why so much money is required for running campaigns mm-hmm. in the first place. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's actually two sides to it, right? There are why do people give money and and why do companies give money and why do campaigns need money? Right, right. I think that's – and, you know, n- not every answer is going to be entirely the same in, with respect to that. I mean, you know, if you're talking about, um, you know, some little old lady writing a check for $25 a month, that's one – set of motivations. And what are those motivations? <laughs> because they believe in this candidate. They want this candidate to win. They want to support this candidate. They know that, you know, a campaign costs a lot of money and they can't do a lot, but they but they want to just kind of identify this campaign is something that I believe in. Right. It's a way of participating. Right. Yeah. And it's uh, and, and it's a way for a candidate to show that they've got grassroots support. Mm-hmm. Uh, which then helps them raise other money. Right. The FEC's job is to oversee this giving mm-hmm. and receiving and make sure that uh, campaigns are following the law and that people that are giving money are, fo- are following the law, which is often, as, as we said at the beginning, intricate and difficult to understand. Right. And, <laughs> and it probably is, at, at some level, the most um, basic thing and, and – um, most important thing that the FEC can do is just to give guidance on on what we all kind of acknowledge is, is something of a morass. You know, even if you, you really wanted, were ardently um, desiring to obey the law, it's not always obvious. 
And really, I think it's fair to say that enforcement is, it's not an enforcement agency. All, all that FEC can do, even if it makes a finding of, of guilt, of lawbreaking, is just sue the person in federal court. There is no, you know, there are no FEC cops or anything like that. So, you know, this is meant to um, advise and oversee. Well, probably a good time then to bring in Jenna and Carolyn and see what she has to say about that. Absolutely, absolutely. This is Jenna Spinelli joined today with Caroline Hunter. Caroline, thank you for joining us on Democracy Works. Thank you, Jenna. It's great to be here. So as I was um, telling people about this interview, um, several folks mentioned to me that I should ask you about voter suppression and voter fraud, which I think maybe speaks to a, a misconception that's out there about the Federal Election Commission and, and the, the work that the organization does. So can you start off by maybe setting the record straight about the organization and its, its work and its mission? Yes. Thank you, Janet. You're correct. A lot of people think that the Federal Election Commission has jurisdiction over election administration, which, as you know, it does not. Um, states uh, elections are run by the state government and local governments, and the Federal Election Commission has jurisdiction over federal campaign finance laws. So laws governing laws and regulations governing the raising and spending of money in political campaigns. Can you talk a little bit about what the kind of day-to-day work of the commission looks like? Yes. The commission receives a lot of complaints from the public, uh, people who are watching campaigns and have a concern that somebody may be violating campaign finance law. So they'll file a complaint with the FEC. The FEC will get an answer from that party and then make a decision, um, what we call an enforcement case, a matter under review, um, as to whether or not that person violated campaign finance law. That's the bulk of our work. What type of, of things do you do you see in the, the complaints? Are there, there trends or particular things that, that members of the public tend to, to latch on to or be on the lookout for specifically? Yes, um, there are trends that happen in, in each cycle. About two cycles ago, the trend was we received a lot of complaints about an area that we called testing the water. So it's presidential candidates who were out um, speaking about issues, and the allegation is that they were they weren't properly reporting monies once they become candidate. And so that's something that we got a lot of um, a lot of complaints about in the last cycle, and we're actually still working through some of those now. It just so happens we're back again with people uh, testing the waters or potentially testing the waters for the 2020 presidential campaign. But yes, there are trends and things that we, we see on uptick on certain kinds of issues. And what does the, the timing of all of this look like? Um, how long does it take from the time someone files a complaint until a, a decision is actually made and any any penalties are, are kind of levied, so to speak, against against a campaign or whoever is involved? So on the advisory opinion request side of things, um, there's a statutory uh, 60-day deadline to provide answers to the public. And so that does happen pretty quickly. If it's related to a campaign, we're required to, to give that decision within 30 days. So those, those happen very quickly. There's a lot of other areas of our agency see that happen um, much more quickly. The enforcement division, um, that does take more time. And unfortunately, it could take a number of years from the time a complaint is filed until a decision is made. Um, some of that is, is good news because there's a lot of due process afforded in the process. So the, the person who is in receipt of the complaint will have time to re- file a response. Sometimes there's an investigation, and those investigations tend to take um, some time. And so in, in those those longer window situations, so it, it is the case, I imagine, it, at least sometimes that, 
you know, the the um, election has happened, a candidate has either won or lost, kind of regardless of, of what happens with this this violation. So how, do, how does that play into to the, the work that you do, if, if at all? It's very. It would be very difficult to make a decision before an election. Most of the camp complaints are filed just before the election, and sometimes they are filed for political reasons. So somebody will file a complaint, and at the very same time, they'll file a press release um, to try to to bring some kind of you know implication that somebody did something wrong. You know, they're often their opponent. So those things almost invariably will be finalized after the election, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And and I know that there are. Uh, two vacancies on the the commission itself now currently. Right? Yes, that's and correct. What impact does that have on the, the the work that you do? As you know, the commission is uh, has three members of each party. So in a full commission, there's three Republicans and three Democrats. Right now, we have two Republicans and two Democrats. So one of the good things about the commission that I actually favor is that for any decision to to happen, you have to have four votes. So by definition, under the statute, that decision has to be bipartisan. And a lot of people don't like that about the Federal Election Commission. I actually do. I think it, it prevents one party or another from taking over the operations of the commission. And I think it's something that the government could, should consider doing more often because, again, it requires bipartisanship. When we only have four commissioners, that makes it even harder to get four votes. We, um, If you look at our, our record, we, actually most of the decisions are bipartisan. Some of the some of the bigger issues, the ones that you probably read more about in the paper, uh, do split, and people call that a deadlock, and that's uh, a three to three decision, or now often a two to two decision, and that that's largely because of uh, different ideologies behind interpreting the law. The Republicans generally are more libertarian, less interested in regulation, more interested in, in, in following regulations that have been clearly noticed. So the public has a good sense of what the rules are before the game starts. The Democrats are, I think they would agree if they were here with me today, they're more likely to be more pro-regulatory. They're, um, they're a little bit more willing to read regulations more broadly than we are. And so that ideological... Um, that ideological disparity mm-hmm. sometimes makes it hard to come up to a uh, to a consensus vote. So you mentioned before that you you wish that more parts of the government could operate in this this bipartisan manner, like, like the the FEC does. Are those conversations that you've you've had with your your colleagues, or is it something that you feel like you could have an influence on to to kind of move the needle in that way? Most, um, I'm specifically talking about commissions, mm-hmm. and I think when you have a, a sort of a separate independent commission, I think it does make sense to to frame it in this way. Um, of course, the laws would have to be changed in order to do that. And uh, I think I think a lot of my colleagues agree that it, it's a good way of going. I know a lot of academics don't necessarily like the idea. They prefer it to be an odd number um, so that there aren't deadlocks. But I, I tend to disagree. There is a commission, as you may know, called the Election Assistance Commission. I was a member of that commission just prior to being at the FEC. And it, too, is, is situated in the same way. There are two members of the Republican Party and two members of the Democratic Party. You mentioned earlier that if there are, you need four votes in order to to move something forward. So in theory, that means if one more person leaves the commission, then what what happens then? Then there would be a lack of quorum, and the commission wouldn't be able to operate as planned by the statute. Right. And that's so that has to be kind of scary for you as the chair, right? <laughs> thinking about what happens. It doesn't look like that's going to happen, um, at least before the election, and probably not this calendar year. Um, it has happened in the past, and uh, so the commit 
the the docket will be on a standstill until new commissioners are nominated and confirmed. So you've been on this this commission for ten years, and I know in in the middle of that that we had the, the Citizens United ruling. Yes. Can, can you talk about how the commission's work has changed since in, since that ruling? Yes. That ruling, uh, along with a number of other rulings, have really enabled more, in my from my perspective, more people to become involved in politics. As you know, the campaign finance, the uh, Citizens United decision allowed corporations to run independent expenditures, which are um, ads essentially advocating for the election or defeat of a federal candidate. And so, people always think when you say corporations, they think of Exxon Mobil or some large corporation. It also includes advocacy organizations, which are often organized under the tax code um, as a 501c4 corporation. Now they're able to directly advocate for the election or defeat of a candidate that they share the same values with. And I think that's a good thing for democracy. They, um, If they're 501c4s, they can only do a certain amount of political work, both under the Federal Election Commission jurisdiction and under IRS jurisdiction. So they are limited, but now they have more of an ability to affect elections and participate in democracy. And and from from your perspective, how has that changed the the kind of day-to-day work of the, the commission? Well, it, it hasn't changed the day-to-day work, but I think it's fair to say that there, there are fewer regulations. And so there are fewer, you know, complaints filed on those issues. And we've, we've gotten complaints then on different ones. But, but certainly there's a whole swath of the regulations that, that were removed by that decision and others. Mm-hmm. Do, do you worry at all that um, some of the, the campaigns or these the, the, you know, PACs or other organizations are becoming kind of too big to fail in terms of, you know, you can think about you know, J.P. Morgan Bank or even tech companies like Facebook, if you, even if you find them, a couple million dollars is going to be like a, a drop in the bucket to them. Do you worry that campaigns are kind of heading in that similar direction? They're certainly spending a lot more money in each year since a new benchmark, um, which doesn't, isn't really that bothersome. I think in some way you can look at it as more, again, more people participating in democracy. A lot of the money that's raised, um, by especially by certain candidates, come from small donors and they're raised often on the website, on their websites. So I think I think it's a good thing. I think direct uh, answering your question about the fines, that is a concern for a lot of people that they're they're willing to sort of, you know, do things a little bit more... Um, aggressively because they're not concerned about the fines. That's certainly something some people are worried about. But from my experience, both of working at the Republican National Committee on campaigns and at the Federal Election Commission, almost everybody who participates in politics has the goal of electing their preferred candidate and following the laws. The laws are extremely complicated and complex. Elections are run, you know, very fast paced, often with a shell of a staff, and they're doing it very quickly. They they are, again, in my experience, they are very much so trying to follow f- campaign finance laws. They call, they consult with our, with our um, analysts and our information division on a regular basis, and I don't think that they're trying to thwart the law. Um, so you, this, the uh, FEC was, was a, a post-Watergate, uh, you know, kind of came about in the, in the post-Watergate era. And uh, the world in, in 2018 is very different than it was, you know, some 40 years ago. Do you th- think that the, your, your processes and, and, and how you do things have kind of kept pace with the way that the, the world and, and politics is, has changed over the past couple of decades? 
Well, I think that, um, you know, the goal of campaign finance is the same. It's to shine light on people who are giving contributions to federal candidates, campaigns, party committees. And we're still doing that. I think it's really amazing in this country what we do. When we meet with people from other countries, they're just astounded that people actually give contributions and they're reported and they don't necessarily, they don't expect anything directly in return. And so we should be very proud that that we report, you know, a lot of contributions, millions, and in this case, billions of dollars of contributions are reported on the public record almost immediately. So that hasn't changed at all. At the the very beginning of our, our discussion, we talked about voter suppression and, and, and voter fraud and, and those types of things. And, and, and is there a, a kind of a companion organization that, that like the FEC to kind of look at those those um those things? And, and if not, do you think that there would be a, a place for one one to exist in that same kind of bipartisan manner? There is, in a sense. It's called the Election Assistance Commission. And I was a commissioner mm-hmm. at that commission um, just prior to coming to the FEC. And they don't have a lot of, a lot of power, actually. Um, it's still all run by the states and the local jurisdictions the elections are. But they do have some ability to provide a clearinghouse of information for state and local officials. And they have done some studies to try to um, illustrate some of these issues. I don't think that the federal government is the proper place to give a lot of authority to those issues. I think it makes sense to allow state and local governments to run elections. Each state is different. They all have different issues. Some are more rural, some are more. And it, it makes it makes a lot of sense to me that the local officials are running their own elections. So, um, Carolyn, we, we hear a lot of people talk about dark money. Um, can, you, can you can you explain to us uh, what that is and, and, and how it ties into the, the PACs and the 501c4s you were mentioning earlier? Yes, if I could take a step back. So people uh, get... People, a lot of people are disappointed with the Citizens United decision because they say it brought a lot of uh, spending that isn't disclosed. And I'd like to just address one part of that. Super PACs did come after Citizens United, but Super PACs are political committees. So every dime in and out of Super PACs are reported to the to the Federal Election Commission. You can go online and see everything that they're doing because they are, by definition, political committees within the jurisdiction of the camp- of the Federal Election Commission. Another thing is independent expenditures that we talked about earlier. Corporations can now run independent expenditures directly advocating for the election or defeat of a federal candidate. People who do that have to file an independent expenditure report with the FEC and note that they did that. They have to file it within 24 or 48 hours, so it's a really quick turnaround for them. A third category is what you call dark money groups, and that's 501c4 groups, which are also now able to uh, run independent expenditures and do some political activity that they largely were not able to do before. So as I said, I think that's a good thing for democracy. The issue that people have and why they call it dark money is because the donors to those organizations are not reported to the Federal Election Commission. And the reason why is they're not political committees. They're organizations that are generally an issue advocacy organization, like the um, National Rifle Association or the Sierra Club. Those organizations may decide to run an independent expenditure, but their major purpose is not political activity. And so if the FEC were to find that their major purpose was political activity, then they would be political committees and all of their money in and out would have to be reported to the Federal Election Commission. One of the big debates right now on the FEC 
is when is someone a political committee and when are they not? And there's an, a, court, a case right now in federal court that will provide additional guidance on that issue. The uh, Republicans, Republicans on the commission are less likely to to reach the to broaden federal jurisdiction and regulate what we think are issue advocacy groups. There's a long line of Supreme Court precedent on privacy of donors for a variety of reasons. When somebody gives to certain organizations, they're giving generally for an issue that they care about. And and our view is that the government shouldn't reach them unless they become a political committee. That's the jurisdiction of the FEC. Mm-hmm. So c- could we kind of plane this out? Could if, if more and more people continue to give to these 501c4 groups, I mean, it, it seems like that's kind of an, an incentive almost like to you can, you know, give to this and not have your your individual name kind of attached to to your your donation. Wouldn't that be something that everybody would just kind of want to do and, you know, get on that particular bandwagon? That's a good question. I think people, um, may do that if they prefer their name not to be disclosed. And a lot of people prefer their name not to be disclosed because they may be harassed by people who disagree with them. There's a lack of civility right now, particularly for people on a certain side of the aisle. When um, they give to certain organizations, they, they have blowback from that, whether it's in their personal life or their business life. So it is possible for that to happen. But remember, if you're giving money to one of these groups like the NRA or the Sierra Club, the bulk of their activity is not political activity. So you're likely to give to those kinds of groups if you care deeply about that issue. And often issues are, they intersect with politics. And so you're, so somebody, if you give to that group, they're likely to support a candidate who agrees with the mission of the organization. But I think that's a fair point. It's, it's possible that people will start doing that. And my answer to that is they have the constitutional right to do so. And it also changes the the commission's work, though too. I mean, you're you're re- you're kind of reviewing and and regulating in a in a much different way, right? If you're looking at these kind of bigger umbrella organizations as opposed to like individual donors. Well, or we like that. we don't look at anybody mm-hmm. until a complaint is mm-hmm. filed. So somebody would have to file a complaint, and then it has to make it to a threshold for us to, to investigate. Mm-hmm. And our threshold's called a reason to believe, and. Guess what? That's another disagreement on the commission of what exactly is that does that threshold mean? And so if we get past a finding of reason to believe, then we may investigate a group, but it's that's a in in my opinion it's a fairly high threshold sure. for the government to be to be um doing investigation on a private group. Can you give us a sense of, of who is looking at the the commission's reports? Who's who's viewing the uh, largely it's the press. The press is very interested in our reports. The minute they go on online, they've already, you know, distilled them in a million different ways. And and a lot of the reports you're seeing now in this election season over how much somebody raised or how how much more was it from last cycle, that's all coming from the FEC. So it's generally the press is looking at it the most. You know, thinking about the kind of election process as a whole, the the U.S. goes to pretty great lengths to protect anonymity in the voting booth in terms of, you know, it's it's taboo to think of to ask someone who they voted for. But at the same time, we can go online and see who gave money to which candidate, which is a pretty good indicator of, of, of who they vote for. So how do you kind of square those those two things or, or, or should they be? I really like that question, and I actually haven't thought much about it in the past. But I think I think it's something to think about. There is um, there are a lot of people who are considering: Do we want as much public disclosure because of 
people who are interested in their own privacy or because the threats that we that we alluded to in the past. But you're right. There is a there is a difference there in the way we're treating people. And it's I think it's something we should think about. And then finally, um, uh, how much interaction, if any, do you have with with members of, of Congress and, and your your work? Are you guys talking about issues or, or violations or, you know, things that are, are coming up? In my experience, members of Congress are not terribly interested in talking about campaign finance law. For one thing, we regulate all of their campaigns. And so they're they're always concerned when when they talk. They just generally don't want to talk to us about those issues. And coming up with legislation that can be agreed on in this area is very difficult. So we haven't seen a bill move on the floor in a very long time. So members of Congress generally, in my experience, are not terribly interested in talking about campaign finance law. Does that have an impact on democracy? Do you think? I I don't stumper at the end. Yeah, exactly. Right at the end, I think that there there it would be useful for people to have more thorough conversations about campaign finance law on on a deeper level than we're currently doing. Yes. Great. So we're going to end, as we always do, with our four Mood of the Nation poll questions. So thinking specifically about American politics, what makes you angry? makes me angry that people don't listen to one another. Uh, what makes you proud? We live in the greatest country on the earth. You're doing really great on the, the lightning round, by the way. Uh, what, what makes you worry? It makes me worry. It's same as what makes me angry, that people aren't willing to have a thoughtful, engaging conversation with others, with people with whom they disagree. And then finally, what gives you hope? gives me hope coming here to Penn State. I just met with a group of students who are phenomenal, really, really bright kids who are interested in the future, and it gives me a lot of hope. It's great to be in Happy Valley. All right. Well, we will leave it there. Caroline, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. That was, that was really interesting, and, and it, it speaks directly to why, Michael, I think it was a good idea for us to engage these issues because the the question of how you fund a campaign and how you regulate people giving money to a campaign really gets at some very, very fundamental questions about a democracy. Yeah, this is part of what's so in- interesting about the Citizens United decision because it really did settle in on issues of freedom and speech right. and equating money with speech. Right. Uh, Justice Kennedy in his uh, in his opinion, wrote that if the First Amendment has any force, it prohibits Congress from fining or jailing citizens or associations of citizens for simply engaging in political speech. Right. And so therefore, from the perspective of Citizens United, anybody can basically spend money because that's just them exercising their speech. Dropping a million dollars is is not a hardship. It's not <laughs> difficult, right? For, for most people... It, it's just out of the question. And so you have this um, uh, inequitable distri- distribution of power. And that was Justice Stevens' point in his, uh, in his dissent on Citizens United. A democracy cannot function effectively when its constituent members believe laws are being bought and sold. And uh, from his perspective, this creates a legitimation crisis. Even more fundamentally than that, you have two very fundamental principles, um, not just in American democracy, but in democracy period, that are not, do not, uh, do not cohere seamlessly, right? You have, on the one hand, freedom of speech, and on the other hand, uh, one person, one vote, 
right? So on 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 the one hand, you say, listen, I ha- as a citizen have the right to say what I want and to influence candidates and campaigns and issues the way I want. And on the other hand, you have this radical idea of democracy, of of equality, where every single person, no matter who they are, no matter how rich or powerful they are, their vote counts the same. And trying to put those together is basically why we have what she calls a mishmash, right? It is very difficult to put these two things together. And uh, th- this is where these uh, the notion of uh, dark, money dark money comes in, because you have groups, if you have groups whose primary purpose is not political, then they can raise whatever kind of money they mm-hmm, want mm-hmm. without having to identify who the donors are. Right. She always says she uses the example of the NRA and the Sierra Club. Right. Mm-hmm. And and this is where this is the area where many people interested in campaign finance reform are now directing their attention. So it's not so much the issue of, you know, are we going to publicly finance campaigns? Are we going to limit the amount of money that certain groups can give or that people can give, but rather transparency. Right. That that we create a situation where we at least know where all the money is coming from. In, she in also campaigns. also made the argument that, that, you know, especially in this hyperpartisan time, there are good reasons why somebody would not want to um, have their name out there and would not want to be associated um, with with some campaign, even though they they believe it or whatever. So so the other question is, in your mind, you know, is there a way out of this? Is is this just simply a, a an inevitable, um, unsolvable problem that is always going to, you know, the ball is always going to be moving down the field. There's going to be things that are going to change in terms of technology or, or, you know, access or, you know, what's a super PAC, what's a PAC, you know, I mean, all these things are just always shifting and we can't really get control of it. So the best we can do is uh, transparency. Is I mean, is that kind of where you well, are? Transparency or public funding. Right. Uh, you know, I do. I do often get the sense with campaign finance law that, you know, you can change it, you can tighten it, you can loosen it, but that people that want to and companies in particular, which have the ability to hire all kinds of lawyers, right? You know, will find ways around it if they want to contribute, if they want to participate, they're going to be able to find a way to do it. Now, how can that be countered? It can be countered either by, you know, public financing. Mm-hmm. But we've never had public mm-hmm. financing mm-hmm. congressional campaigns. But public financing would equalize things. If, but you know, one thing we saw with uh, with uh, Obama when he initially decided not to accept it is that public financing is also quite limiting to candidates. Mm-hmm. You know, if I can raise more money, why can't I raise? Sure. Why? And then another side of it is yes, transparency that at least it become completely clear where the money is coming from, mm-hmm. so that people know. And this. Uh, this takes on some of the issues that that we've been talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think you. I mean, I I don't disagree with any of that. I think you know, at some point, you the job of of legislation is to say, here is um, a legitimate legal use of money, and here is an illegitimate use of money. And I think, you know, nobody would. Um, say it's okay for me to put a $100 bill in the coat of a policeman and say, you didn't see nothing, right? <laughs> well, true. But in the, in the post-Citizens United world, I think we just have to accept yeah. that campaign contributions have been equated with speech. And the, given that, it's going to be very hard to regulate. I, I think that's right. But, but given, given the ruling there, 
then transparency or public financing seem to be the ways of addressing some of the inequities that are raised by it. But the inequities are always going to be there. I mean, this is something, as I think you alluded to this before, I mean, this is something we see in a democracy all the time. Right. But, you know, I mean, one thing I, I think is kind of interesting about the Better O'Rourke campaign mm-hmm. and why everybody, why many people now talk about Better O'Rourke for president or something. Right. Because his ability mm-hmm. to get so much money through small contributions speaks directly to his ability to energize, mobilize, and gain support. Mm-hmm. It, it's you know it shows that his reach is well beyond Texas. They're out there collecting small contributions too through their website and then directing it to different campaigns around the country. It's created an entirely, and it, and it may actually be that the most interesting activity around campaign financing now is coming. In terms of these smaller contributions right. that, that can match these very large contributions mm-hmm, coming mm-hmm, from a smaller mm-hmm. number of entities. Yeah, I mean I, – I, And there's something wonderfully democratic about that. Sure. Because sure. it gives people an opportunity to participate beyond simply voting. And that's really Carolyn's argument. That, I mean that's really where she comes down to. Yeah. And um, I mean so, so there are – these issues are ongoing, right? I mean, the question of transparency is going to continue. And, and you know, if, if we are correct to frame this issue around these two fundamental principles of freedom of speech and, and one person, one vote, they're never going to go away. But it is something that, you know, as Democrats small d... Uh, we just have to be cognizant of and, and aware how these things are, are playing out because they implicate the most fundamental issues of our democracy. Yes, and maybe that's a note on which to uh, thank Carolyn, uh, not only for coming in today, but for her work. Right. They are the only body that right. really stands right. between the public and candidates and parties, uh, and they're doing important work in a democracy, and that's making sure that the rules are followed. Right, right, absolutely. All right, well, um, so... Um, thank you to Carolyn. Thank you to Jenna. And uh, thank you all for listening. I'm, I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. And this is Democracy Works. Democracy Works.